at the time I unearthed these letters, I was deep into writing this memoir. And a lot of what I found in this physical evidence contradicted the stories I had been telling all my life. Welcome to Daring to Tell, the podcast where nonfiction writers read their essays or memoir chapters of true personal daring. I am your fellow aspiring memoirist, Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. Who do we need in order to make our way through our lives? I was just looking at a thesis that I wrote back in the year 2000, satisfying requirements for an independent study master's degree program. I see two things as I just look at the very opening pages. I see my first formal attempt at a braided story, my own childhood experience, and the complex story of my mother and me and the invisible force that guided our story, Christian science. Then I also see the influence of my academic advisors, who were there to introduce me to the invisible force that I yearned to know more about, psychology. I saw the string of names of the women developmental theorists that they introduced me to as contrasted to Eric Erickson and his eight stages of human development. It was about Erickson's, quote, traditional model contrasted with a, quote, newer model that was inclusive of women. It posited an alternative model of looking at development, one that moved toward connection as opposed to Erickson's, which moved towards individuation. I was very determined on learning these theories, applying them to myself in an effort to come up with an accepted scientific equation, proving that my mother's science was wrong. The conversation I remember most was after they reviewed all my work, thought it was very well done, and then broke the news to me. It was not my place to change my mother's mind about how she chose to live her life. It was more than an academic lesson. I have been sitting with that idea for the intervening 22 years, packed away that paper and that research into a clear plastic tub with a pale blue cover so I could preserve my work while tucking it into the back of a closet, if not my mind. Digging through containers of old letters and memorabilia is also the launching point with Laura Davis. Laura has the mother of all mother-daughter stories. How could I not introduce her this way? She is the author of the seminal book, The Courage to Heal. That book was perhaps the final straw in a long list of disconnections she had with her mother, Temi. Her latest book is called The Burning Light of Two Stars. She is going to talk all about what led up 
to the section that she's going to read from from this memoir, so I'm not going to say too much more about it right now. However, before we get started, I want to tell you about another writing podcast I've discovered and that I am very excited to be doing a promo swap with. It is called Hashtag Am Writing. I will link to it in the show notes. It is a fantastic podcast co-hosted by not one, but three writers, K.J. Delantonia, novelist and former New York Times writer and editor of the Motherload blog, Jessica Leahy, author of the New York Times best-selling parenting book, The Gift of Failure, and Serena Bowen, yet another best-selling author of many contemporary romance novels. They talk with all kinds of authors and discuss all kinds of writing. And what their podcast is going to be doing over the summer is this very cool thing. It is called The Blueprint for a Book Challenge for anyone who wants to seriously get a handle on a book project. Starting July 1st, it'll be 10 weeks of episodes with 10 different guests outlining steps that will help take your book idea from just an amorphous blob to a solid plan. And of course, there is an incentive. If you follow along and meet all the deadlines, you might win a critique on your blueprint from either KJ Delantonia or book coach Jenny Nash. This is such a great chance to build in some structure and accountability toward your book idea, whether you're just in the inspiration stage or or maybe you have some draft chapters or even a giant chunk of messy first draft that you just don't know how you're going to pull it all together. So check out hashtag amwriting, A-M-W-R-I-T-I-N-G podcast. Their episodes drop every Friday and you'll be checking it out just in time for the blueprint for a book challenge starting July 1st. One more very quick thing Each month, I have been starting to give a shout out to a local independent bookstore in Maine. This month, it is Royal River Books in Yarmouth. You will hear more about them at the end of the episode. But now we will jump into the conversation that I had with Laura Davis responding to the question that I often start off with, with writers, and that is, when and how did she start writing? The first record I have of my writing was something I came across. I have these boxes that I store under my stairs. They're these turquoise plastic boxes called Laura's Archives. And it's just Uh like stuff I've shoved in there for decades and decades and decades. And I I went through them at one point when I was working on this memoir. And in there was a typed story from like a, um, what were those old, old typewriters called? The manual typewriters with the keys oh. you have to press really hard. I can't remember the brand. Yes. Um, but Royal. I, yeah, or something Smith like that. Corona. It was bla- Smith Corona. And it was black and it had these like round keys that were like standing up and you had to press down really hard. And my father taught me to type when I was in third grade. And there's a story I typed, ah. <laughs> a short story I wrote about, it was like an adventure in Africa. <laughs> My big brother was obsessed wow. with studying the African continent. And yep. yeah, so that was my first story that I actually typed. Wow. So fiction was your first. It was it was fiction. So I, I always have used words to express myself, both 
I think it was a creative writing, you know, but also yeah. as a way to sort out what I was feeling, what I was thinking, right. making decisions. I've, I've always used writing as a tool for, I wouldn't have called it a tool for healing then, but right. for self-knowledge, yeah. for venting. And then, you know, from the time I was a teenager, I was doing things publicly with my writing. And then I was using it as a tool for rabble-rousing <laughs> Ah, for yeah. I like to shock people, especially as a teenager, ah. as a way to educate, as a way to inform, as a way to inspire, as a way to move people emotionally. And I, I mean, that's been my wow. whole life. I've been doing that in one form or another. I was, a, you know, you know, I was a radio producer, mm-hmm. talk show host. Yeah, I, you know, was a public speaker. So it's like always were, and then writing, you know. And I was a little bit of a journalist. I didn't like it. But I, I wrote feature articles in my 20s, um, uh-huh. you know, and then I published my first book, The Courage to Heal, that I wrote with Ellen Bass. Yes. I started writing that book when I was 28 years old. Wow. So young. Uh, my son is first turned 29. So that's like, I think, oh, my God, it uh, would be it would be what Eli funny. was doing at this age. And then it got published when I was 31 and completely changed my life because it became this underground completely unexpected bestseller. Yes. And it changed the culture. It changed millions of women's lives, and not just women, people who had been sexually abused as children, because it was the first guidebook about how to heal from the trauma of sexual abuse and really any trauma. Right. And it was kind of like being in the right place at the right time with the right message that was informative, inspiring, and accessible. And filled with personal stories. Right. And that book just, you know, it changed my life. It, it made me basically famous for the worst thing that had ever happened to me, which was sexual abuse with my grandfather. Yeah. So then right. that established me as an author. And then I kept writing books. I mean, this book is my seventh book. Yes. And so it's just a way I shine out in the world. You know, now I right. teach writing and it's just more communication. It's all about... Communication, it's all about the power of the personal story, whether it's my story or the story of my students, as a transformative, empowering force. I I really believe in the power of telling our, our deepest stories. I couldn't agree more, and that is what I'm clearly drawn to in reading memoir and in sharing memoir and talking with other memoirists and in writing myself, which I still, I am working on. But the idea of sort of that immediate fame that you had and really deep and meaningful connection with so many people right away for one of the most horrifying things that ever happened to you, its uh, that's got to have been a weird moment to suddenly been thrust into the spotlight for. Yeah, it was. And I think what made it the most challenging was that I was so deeply in my own healing process at the time. You know, I had only, I had blocked out the memory of the sexual abuse. The memory came to me when I was 27 years old. So I was completely in the throes of my own healing. I mean, this this healing process we wrote a book about, I was doing it. Yeah. And in fact, yes. I, I remember at the time, I didn't really believe it would work for me. I believed it would work wow. for other people, but I thought I would be the exception wow. and that I would never be able to heal. Mm-hmm. So I was going to therapy, you know, two times a week. I was in a support group. I was in a writing group for incest survivors. And then I was interviewing like 200 women in these like long six-hour interviews. We do these two, three-hour interviews 
I mean, really in-depth, incredible. And I would cry through those interviews. I mean, I was not an objective reporter. Whatever I was struggling with, I'd go into the, the interview and I'd say, well, what did you do about your mother? Yeah. What about your sexuality? You know, right. um, you were asking did you all ever the get over this? All the things I needed to know. And then when the book came out and I was up there on these stages all over the country, I mean, women would come on buses to hear me speak. They would line up around the block, yeah. clutching their copies of The Courage to Heal. Yeah. And then I would get up on stage, just me with a spotlight and a glass of water, and I would talk for like an hour and a half. And I always felt like I was given this gift of being able to speak from a much more healed place than I was in myself, I guess is how I would put it. You know, hmm. I live in California. People here would say I channeled. I don't <laughs> like that word because of all the connotations it has, but it felt that way. It felt like I was a vessel for something that needed to be communicated and that I needed to hear myself. Mm -hmm. But at the end of those nights, then I would just collapse because I didn't have the, the emotional and spiritual chops yet right. to handle what I had been handed. Right. I was still so broken. You know, I, I just hadn't done enough healing myself. And, and also to be idealized by so many women. On one hand, I felt this incredible gratitude at being in that position and this awe at being put in that position. And I really cared about every woman that came up and men too. It right. became men started coming. Yes. But every person that came up and they would want to tell me their story in the like one minute or 30 seconds they had with me while I signed their book, I would listen to them. And I felt this incredible respect and awe. Right. But I also felt overwhelmed because they saw me as some kind of icon of healing. And I knew how broken I was on the inside. So there was this disconnect at that time. Yeah. And it, it was painful, you know, and I just felt so not integrated. Um, right. You know, if I was in that position now, I'd have a very, very different experience because I've been working on myself for, you know, 50 years. <laughs> right. Well, I'm not sure who anyone who ever arrives at that point and is ready to face all that. I mean, as you were writing it, and I am a firm believer, as you know, or may guess that also reading, telling our story is another iteration of getting to that healing point. So you were still working on all that right then. Yeah, so I, I actually, you know, after some years of being in that position, and I wrote three other books on healing from sexual abuse, I just walked away from it. I mean, I just, I realized that I was maybe 34, I think at the time, and I had met my life partner, Karen, mm -hmm. was the beginning of our relationship. She had an 11-year-old son, uh, my stepson, I call him my son now, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't like step, yeah. it sounds so distant, and I love right. him just like my other kids. And I just wanted something else. I wanted a normal life. Like I, I felt like I had, yeah. maybe I had earned the right to love. I wanted to have children. Yeah. And I didn't want my whole life to be identified with the trauma I had experienced as a child. Like I, right. I didn't want my identity to be, you know, a professional incest survivor. <laughs> it's like not who I wanted to right, be. Right. And yeah. um, so I, I left and I was really at the peak of my success in terms of the success of the book. And I had all these speaking gigs and I just said, I can't do this anymore. I, I didn't know what was next, but I did walk away from it at that point. And then two more, we had two more children and 
I just changed my life. I wanted a domestic life. I didn't want to be on the road all the time. And right. there's been a lot of transitions like that in my life. And I have had a super non-traditional life in many ways. And yet I've been with the same spouse for over 30 years. Mm-hmm. I've lived in the house I live in for 20 years. Right. I raised right. children in one place, you know, and yeah. did a lot of normal things. You know, I, I have a cousin who says, you and Karen, you know, these this lesbian couple, she goes, you are the most traditional couple I know, <laughs> which I find really funny. Not so funny yeah, now yeah. with what's going well, on politically, you know. Well. Not funny no, at all. No. But to get back to the writing and those turquoise boxes that I recall you, uh, I recall from reading that you dragged out from underneath your stairs as a person who just moved from a city life to a rural life, the description you gave of crawling underneath that crawl space with all the bugs, that was enough to like send me into like fits of terror. I was like, ah, bugs, I can't handle it. So going to get those journals was incredibly brave. But what what role have the journals played for you in your writing as through all the different writing that you Well, the first thing I want to say is I'm not a a very good journaler. You know, like I don't journal at all anymore. And and it's, when I was young, it's something I would do when I was depressed, you know, when I was in a low place. So when I went back and read the journals, it sounded like I was always miserable. And I I don't think that was really true. But that's when I would run and write. I didn't write from a place of joy. That story you're referring to is a story I tell in the memoir. I A memoir is not the story of your entire life. It's the story of part of your life. And I knew that the story I wanted to tell was about my very tumultuous, challenging, ultimately redemptive relationship with my mother. And so I knew that in this box, I had all these letters from her. And she had died at that point. And when I cleaned out her things, I found a shoebox full of letters between us. It was marked Lori. She was the only person allowed to call me Lori, which was one of my childhood nicknames. Mm -hmm. And in that box were all the letters I had ever sent to her. Copies of all, handwritten copies, mostly handwritten. There were a few type, mostly handwritten copies of all the letters she'd ever sent to me. And then drafts of letters she had composed and never sent like the sense, the one she had censored, they were all in that box. Wow. And then so I went into my eaves under the under my office, and I dragged out this box. And there was my version of the same thing. I didn't even know it was in there. And when I put these letters together, the ones I had saved, and these journals were like, so old, they were moldy. Mm-hmm. They had like, I would paper clip a copy of the letter. And then where the paper clip had been on the page, there'd be rust. <laughs> Oh, God. It was like so, and just the way they smelled and the way they felt and the pages were crackly and yeah. it took so much discipline for me to read those. I, I would pick them up and I would just get exhausted and fall asleep, you know, or I would just like, I'd want to go smoke a joint or I'd want to go eat some chocolate or I just would want to run away, <laughs> anything to run away from those letters. But I, yeah. I made myself read them and I put her letters and my letters together and there was like two really fat file folders full of letters. And it traced our relationship from this period of time when we became very, very deeply, well, there were some earlier letters, but mostly it was this time of incredible estrangement. Um, She and I had always had a challenging relationship, probably, you know, I'd say from the time I hit puberty or from the time I started becoming my own person, we started having trouble because my mother... 
I think she saw herself as the sun. And I was to be a minor planet oh, orbiting sun, around sorry, her. Oh, sun, sorry, S-U-N, not S-O-N. I was S-U-N, like, wait a minute. Yes, right. okay. She was the But, yeah. you know, she, she gave birth to another son. And so the two of us were like, she wanted right. to control my life. She had a lot of ideas of how I should be and the college I should go to. And I should marry a nice Jewish man. And I should, she used to say, you could fall in love with a rich man as easy as a poor man. <laughs> These kind of things. Mm-hmm. Typical right. of her generation, really, yeah. her background. But as I began to assert myself. I was born in 1956. I grew up through the 60s and early 70s. And I was completely influenced by that time. My father dropped out and became a hippie. My brother was off doing tons of acid at college. Mm -hmm. And I came of age during that time. So of course, there was a lot of rebellion in the air. And so she and I started having a very difficult relationship, more than typical challenges of adolescence. Then I got a full scholarship to Wellesley College as a 16-year-old, and I turned it down. She never forgave me for that. I came out as a lesbian, you know, in my early 20s. Just one thing after another, and she saw all my decisions as done to spite her in particular. Like I was doing it to hurt her, not like I was just living my life. And I, you know, I, I think I was a challenging daughter, no doubt about it, you know, and I really tried to acknowledge that as well. But the real straw that broke our relationship was when I remembered the sexual abuse with her father. And when I told her about it, she, um, you know, she basically, she sided with her dead father over her living daughter, and she attacked me and, you know, basically said I was a liar, I was making it up to destroy her and to ruin her life. And, and I was at the worst time in my life, and she abandoned me. And so, you know, it was a huge betrayal. And I really wanted her support. And she really wanted me to recant. And we were so that was it, we were at this impasse, neither one of us was budging from our position. There were a lot of letters from that period. Right. And then the letters continued, I'd say, until my maybe my early 30s. It's probably about 15 years of of these letters that tracked this. We were both writers. I mean, I am a writer, but she was an incredible writer. She she never really claimed that identity, but her letters were amazing. Mm -hmm. And some of them were full of rage. Some of them were tender. And the thing that was so challenging for me, I was, at the time I unearthed these letters, I was deep into writing this memoir. And a lot of what I found in this physical evidence contradicted the stories I had been telling all my life. Because I love telling stories about how awful my mother was. I would tell them all the time. And she played a role in my stories. And she was the ogre. Mm -hmm. I describe her in the book. I think at one point I said, I felt like she was like a spider luring me into her web to devour me. That's how I viewed her. Yeah, she's a really tough person and a difficult person to have as a mother. And she had some terrible qualities, but she also had many wonderful qualities. You know, she was not an ogre. She was a very complex human being. And those letters revealed that. And so it was quite a challenge to read those letters and to have to look at what was my investment in seeing her in such a narrow, defined way. So that was part of my journey was, you know, how do I see myself as fully human and not as the victim? And how do I see her as fully human and not as the perpetrator in my story? You know, and I, I knew when I started the memoir, I never wanted to write a book like that. I always tell my writing students, you know, don't write a book for revenge. Right. It's like, it's so boring. It's just not interesting. It's like, we want to see full three-dimensional characters. So I knew I wanted to get there as I wrote the memoir. And those letters were a big part of my process. Well, 
can I just say, like, all that that you just said, bingo. Like, it is so, I take a huge deep breath and go, there's so much that really resonates with me that is in the book and that is clear that you went through with your mom. And in looking at these letters, because I really love writing letters and I too have like letters tucked here and there and places that I wish they were in one turquoise box of good stuff somewhere that's like big disorganization. But you know, the letters that I have not sent. And when we go back and look at them, they can tell a story that we go, oh, do I remember that? I think I think it was, I made a note somewhere in reading your book that like you can even read your own handwriting about something and go, who was this person I was talking about? Or, you know, I mean, not one's mother, obviously we remember them, but um, there can be so much that we don't recall. And I do very much identify with the motivation to keep a journal because I know I don't always remember things. So I go, this is what I'm feeling right now. And will I remember and I can go back and look at things and go, oh, this is what happened. Or maybe this was what was going on at this time. And I loved reading in your book about how you had that reassessment moment of, wait a minute, I called myself estranged from my mother, but wait a minute, we were always writing these letters back and forth, or that it was not exactly what the story was that you had been telling yourself. So the chance to have that reconsideration, and your mother certainly comes across as uh, a huge, huge, huge personality. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, absolutely. I just kept like going... Every time you had something that you're describing that she did about, you know, taking your writing class. And I was like, oh, my God, there's so much. And I'm glad you're getting a little of your background in here because we want to set up a little bit before the section that you're going to read for us today, too. So to that end, unless you have something else to say about journals, I don't know. No, I don't have I don't have anything else to say about journals. I mean, I want to say something about memoir, though, memoir writing, because I, I did it and I teach it, is that... The process of writing a memoir is not just reporting events. You know, it's mm -hmm. a real memoir is a process of discovery for the author. And the author is re-examining their life from a vantage point beyond the events they're writing about and yes. should be discovering new meaning to those events or casting them in a different light. And, you know, the best memoirs, the author is asking a question. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe not directly, but I mean, there's an underlying question of something they are seeking for, you know, and for me, it was, can I caretake a parent who betrayed me in the past? You know, that's, that's one way of putting the question. Right. Um, and can I, with a, a heart that has been as damaged as mine, can I actually open it? Right. And can I open it to someone who has hurt me before? And because right. a lot of my book is about caretaking my mother at the end of her life you know and there's a, a structure to it where there's a core story it starts on this day my mother calls me at 80 years old to, to announce she's moving to my town 3,000 miles from where she lives for the rest of her life and it pretty much ends with her death yeah. so that's what creates this like ticking clock you know there's a certain amount of time that's going to happen and then from there I branch off and tell these other stories that help people to understand how we became so deeply estranged and just how fraught the relationship was and also how hard we both worked to 
uh, reconcile. And that's p- what I'm going to read today is really the section of the book that talks about some of that reconciliation process, right? which is not even the main story I'm telling, but it just seemed like a, a great choice to read out loud. Well, I'm glad you think so. I loved this section that you're going to read as well as many others. I love the structure too, which is something I had wanted to ask you about, but you kind of gave us a, an overview of it. But I'm also wondering, because when it comes to memoir, I was sort of pondering this question about spoilers in memoir, and I've listened to plenty of writers talk about their memoir, and I think that there's something in the memoir itself that you feel somewhat reassured that the person has made it to at least write the book about this story, so there's something a little reassuring about that, at least for me. But what is your thought about spoilers in memoir? You know, I think it depends on the memoir. You know, I wrote this like a novel. So I worked very hard to create momentum. So people pick up this book and they continue to read it. I mean, so many people say, I read it in a weekend. I stayed up all night. I couldn't put it down. So I constructed it in a way where I very consciously thought about when to reveal certain material and when to conceal it instead of just you knowing the whole story before it happens. Right. Um, so in this case, there are surprises. There are things that are like really unexpected that happen. There's a lot of twists and turns and I wouldn't want to reveal those. And I, I wouldn't want to reveal the ending either. I mean, my mother dies, you know, you know she's going to die. <laughs> right. But the, the details around that are things that I want the reader to be surprised. Like you want, you want a reader at the end of your book to feel like the ending was surprising but inevitable. Right. That's the goal, you yeah, know. Yeah. It, it it shouldn't be like, well, that's weird. Like, <laughs> right. That's disappointing. Yeah, I yeah. I hate reading a book I love and then the ending just is disappointing and it's just I feel betrayed by the author. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So yeah, for my book there were things that I would not I avoid talking about uh, when I'm being interviewed because I I want people to want to read it and I also want them to have the experience I intended which is that I'll be like oh my god I can't believe this just happened yes so you know and it's hard to do that in memoir a lot of memoirs are not written that way you know it's just this happened then this happened then this happened but I worked really hard to create that sense of cause and effect and to create surprises for the reader well that definitely again another gold star <laughs> As far as I'm concerned, (laughs) the structure was unbelievable. And I really, you know, obviously it's, it goes without saying you put a lot of thought into it, but the way it, the whole thing rolls out is just brilliant. And I am probably one of the slowest readers in the whole entire world. And I did sort of, I try and take my time, honestly, with the things that I especially love. So it took me, I don't know, it might've been less than two weeks to read this, which for me can be sort of lightning pace, but it was, yeah, it's definitely a page turner. Well, some people tell me that they took a long time to read it because it was so emotionally intense for them. Yes. You know, that it just was like, it brought up so much about their mother, their trauma. I mean, this book deals with, it's got humor though. I mean, it's, it's got pathos. It's got humor. I love a read where you're crying and laughing on the same page. So I tried to create that also. And so it's not like it's unremittingly awful, but there are awful things. And there's, it's very vivid. Yeah, it drops you right into the scene. So if you have any similar history, it's going to bring it up for you. So Mm -hmm. I had people said that they had to go talk to their therapist about my book. Which made right. me feel good, actually. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I'm still the same writer who wrote that book at 31, who 
wanted to influence people's lives and help them heal. Yes. You know, so yeah. I both wanted to have a good story. I love when people talk about the craft of the book, but I also wanted to tell a story that would really, you know, inspire people. And especially right now, there's just with all the divisiveness yes. around us yeah. and, you know, all the conflict and all the war and all the families that are torn apart because this one's vaccinated and this one isn't and this one believes the election was rigged and this one thinks it wasn't. Right. It's like to have a story of two people where you could look at them objectively and think these two people will never reconnect. Yeah. And then we did. So, yes. and it's not a saccharine, like hearts and flowers, everything worked out wonder. It's, no. it's a really gritty, honest story. Right. So I think it has inspired people at this particular time. And I, I feel good about that. Yeah. Well, you absolutely should. I mean, I think that that's very true. I think the question of what can we connect over through what obstacles or disagreements or differences is something that we don't see enough examples of in the world today, which is exactly why I love to celebrate those kind of stories that say, this was really blanking hard. <laughs> I don't, I can swear on my own podcast, but I just didn't want to write that. But you know, <laughs> this is really, it's really hard stuff. And yet, you and your mother both found a way through it. And for me, knowing that you had had this background with your mom, this real betrayal of coming to her, letting her know about the sexual abuse, she completely did not believe you, this estrangement, and then this phone call that says, I'm coming to live with you, I'm going to come to your town, and I was like, oh my god, I mean, it's sort of the, this is where the whole... Um, truth is stranger than fiction like how do you get to a point where you decide that you want to take care of a person for the end of her life yeah and it, you know in my case it was really challenging because I was dreading her arrival I was really worried that like our reconciliation which I'm going to read about today that it was dependent on that buffer of 3,000 miles between us and I just didn't know if I could handle it, you know. And also, I had two teenage kids. My two younger kids were teenagers. I had a full-on business as a teaching entrepreneur. I had a totally full life. And then to add a mother who was beginning to have dementia was really scary. Um, and I, I also felt like I was, I was worried about failing, that I would fail as a daughter, that I would fail as a caregiver, and that I just mm -hmm. wasn't capable of that kind of empathy or giving. I, I just didn't know if my heart could open that much. Right. So it was very challenging. And yet at the same time, there was this part of me that, that felt like, well, we reconciled to a certain degree. And what if this is my last opportunity to take it the rest of the way? Because right. what I found was that what I'm going to read today, you'll see that we had achieved a certain amount of reconciliation at this point that I'm going to read. We had gotten over kind of the worst of the most awful things between us, but it was never an intimate relationship. And, and I never really confided. I never confided in my mother mm -hmm. or made myself vulnerable around her. But we function, we learned to function together. And I think when she said she wanted to come for the rest of her, not wanted to, she was coming for the rest of her life. A part of me, a little secret part of me that I probably had a hard time admitting was wondering, will this be the opportunity to really heal this relationship the rest of the way? Yeah. And that, that maybe this is an opportunity for me to 
deepen as a human being. Right. And so I, right. that's why I went for it. And the book is what happened. Right. That's really the main story I tell is what happened. And there's one last thing I, I feel like is really important to say before I read about this caretaking the parent who betrayed you in the past is that this is not for everyone. When I finished writing the book, I sent it to a lot of beta readers who were like tester readers to get feedback about various things, all in the 10 years it took me to write it. Mm -hmm. And the very last version I sent to a friend of mine, and and her comment was, she said, you know, Laura, you don't want people who are in a really abusive situation with someone to feel like they should do what you did. Right. And I was so appreciative that she said that. And I yeah. I wrote a like a little addendum at the end of the book, you know, like if you are estranged. And it basically said, you know, that this path is not the path for everyone. You should never sacrifice your emotional well-being to step in and caretake someone who is abusive Mm -hmm. and that you really have to look at your own circumstances, your own situation and the relationship and the dynamics in it before making this kind of decision. I think when we are betrayed, deeply betrayed by someone or abused by someone, it's like it breaks the normal tie and the normal expectations that children should Mm -hmm. take care of their parents. Um, So for me, it really, I saw it as a choice And it's not the choice for everyone. There are other ways to find a place of peace in a difficult relationship besides actively engaging in it with the other person. And for some people, it would absolutely be the wrong thing. I really want to say that because I don't want people to say, well, Laura Davis said, I should do this. (laughs) It's like, no, "No, maybe you shouldn't do this. Oh, no, I appreciate that That so much. Yeah, I, I feel like I always want to give that caveat because everyone's situations are different. And I have such a history of working with survivors of trauma and sexual abuse. And there are people out there, the best thing is to set a boundary and to never see them again. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes this inner work of like, how do you make peace with the situation? Or how do you make even to be able to send them well wishes from afar, because you've come to understand their history. But it doesn't mean you need to engage with them. Sometimes it's much better just to walk away and create your own best life. Yeah, no, that's good. And I'm I'm very glad you said that because I do think it's important. It's like we listen and read these stories to help find what we connect with, but not all of it's going to be part of our own recognition. Before you read, I have a couple of notes just to make sure the things that you will talk about will be understood. We've talked about how your mom lived in New Jersey and you lived in Santa Cruz. You live in Santa Cruz. And so she was making this big move. Do you want to outline the characters that we're going to hear from just so we know who they are, including Vicky? Yeah, I just wrote down a couple things that I thought were needed to be known. Um, The first is my mother's name is Temi. She was an actor for many decades. Karen is my spouse. Brian is my oldest son, who at the time of the scene I'm going to read was 14. That was 30 years ago. Um, I was a preemie. I had an identical twin sister, Vicky, who died when we were 24 hours old. And the last thing you need to know is that during the time when my mother and I were beginning our process of reconciliation, one of the things she talked about was that geography was our enemy. And that if we continued to live 3,000 miles apart from each other, we would only have a painful past. We wouldn't have any opportunity to begin to share new experiences together. So despite my misgivings, she began 
coming to Santa Cruz, where I live, for two or three months in the winter, basically to get away from the winters in New Jersey. And she would come rent her own apartment and live basically in our vicinity so that we could have time to start having new experiences. And several of the scenes that I'm going to read take place during those winter visits. Okay, so... Laura Davis, reading from The Burning Light of Two Stars. You're going to start with chapter 29, and then we'll skip ahead a little bit, but it'll all make perfect sense whenever you're ready. All right. Chapter 29, Persistence. Laura, 36, Temi, 64, Santa Cruz. I found out that I was pregnant while sitting on the cracked wooden seat of an outhouse in Utah. As I stared at the blue line on the white plastic wand, a fat brown spider dangled down the cobwebbed wall. I lowered the lid on the smelly sea of shit, flung open the door, and raced down the path to our campsite. I shouted to Karen, It's blue! We're having a baby! Then I turned to Brian, who at 14 was not at all keen on knowing anything about my body. Brian! You're going to have a little brother or sister. I had dreamed of this moment for years, then undreamed it. In the early years of remembering the incest, I was certain that I was too damaged to become a mother. How could I possibly be a fit parent? If I had a baby, wouldn't I just repeat the abuse I'd suffered as a child? I felt terrified, sunk before I'd even begun. But years of therapy and Karen's steady love had brought me to this moment. It was 1992, the year that newspapers and magazines across the country were attacking the burgeoning incest survivor movement, enhancing the claims of the newly formed False Memory Syndrome Foundation, FMFS. They were coming after us, Ellen Bass and me, because we were the co-authors of The Courage to Heal, the book that had most visibly inspired survivors' empowerment. They pointed their sharp, accusing fingers at us, insisting that we were destroying their memories by implanting false memories in their daughters. And they didn't just accuse us, they sued us. While I slogged through weeks of nausea, reading pregnancy books, obsessed with every twinge, feeling the quickening, that first amazing fish flop of new life in my belly, the attacks against us grew. Women on the street began smiling at me, clucking in approval for the first time in my adult life. With my visible pregnancy, I was passing as a heterosexual woman. As the word mother came to be no longer about her, but now intimately familiar to me, Ellen went on the road to defend us. As authors of The Courage to Heal, we were invited to be interviewed by every media outlet in the country, or so it seemed. The reporters always promised that of course they wanted to represent our side of the story. Of course they were on the side of survivors. Of course their article or radio show or TV episode would promote healing. They believed in us and our message. They believed the women we'd interviewed, the women we'd written for. So we said yes. 
Well, actually, it was Ellen who said yes, because I was pregnant and cocooning, protecting my heart and the tiny Eli seed growing inside me. I'll take care of this, Laura, Ellen promised, in a moment of generosity that I'm sure she lived to regret, though she was far too polite to ever say so. Ellen is a woman who always keeps her promises. As my belly swelled, I craved liver, a food I normally detest. Karen bought it organic twice a week, cooked it extra well done, smothered with brown onions and ultra-crispy bacon, not a pucker of white fat remaining. While I happily devoured platefuls of it, Ellen got on airplane after airplane and flew off to appear on Donahue and Good Morning America and dozens of other shows. A driver would meet her at the airport with her name, Ellen Bass, held high on a cardboard sign, then drive her to the studio for makeup, depending on the budget, and from there to the set. The hot lights beat down on her, Ellen in her flowered polyester dress, the men claiming to be falsely accused, an occasional angry wife, usually flanked by a so-called memory expert, touting bogus theories. They all lined up against her, even the smooth moderators, the ones who'd been so welcoming in the green room. Once the cameras rolled, they attacked relentlessly, but Ellen never caved. She persisted. Sometimes she'd called me from her hotel room to report on the horrible things they'd said to her. She'd tell me how she remained steady, looking straight into the blinking red light above the camera, ignoring the men and talking only to the survivors she knew were watching at home on TV. You aren't alone, she said to the blinking red light. Healing is possible, she told the women. It wasn't your fault, and I believe you. As my cravings changed from liver to skirt steak, the panel on my maternity stretched jeans expanded, and I made friends with other mothers-to-be. We met and stretched and dreamed about motherhood. I loved being pregnant. I grew my baby and stayed home. Ellen was our warrior. A group of incest survivors started a defense fund on our behalf. This was in the days before internet usage was widespread, so they put up signs in public bathrooms and laundromat bulletin boards, cafes and independent bookstores. They placed small ads in the back of the grassroots newsletter proliferating for survivors in those days, raising money to fight the lawsuits steamrolling over us. Every few days, I'd drive to the Santa Cruz post office to pick up yet another huge sack of mail. Sitting at my desk, I sliced open hundreds of letters. Inside were dollar bills, a single wrinkled one, a fiver, sometimes a twenty, and love notes. Hang in there. You're fighting for all of us. The mail just kept coming, and so did the money, more than $70,000 in small bills, enough to cover half the fees of our attorney. Our publisher, Harper and Rowe, paid the other half. Months later, the lawsuits against us were dropped on First Amendment grounds. We had won. 
But the whole time those donations were rolling in, Ellen never stopped speaking into those cameras, always to the women at home, while the men did everything they could to destroy her, to destroy us. But they couldn't. We may have been on the front lines, but there was a whole wedge of angry, determined, empowered women behind us. I never told my mother about any of this. She had no idea it was happening. So now I'm going to skip ahead. This is chapter 34, The Deal, four years later. Laura, 40, Temi, 69, Santa Cruz. Mom, I'd like to write a book about us, about our reconciliation. It was the last day of my mother's winter visit, and Lizzie was just starting to crawl. I'd invited Mom to meet me for a final lunch at her favorite restaurant, just the two of us. Restaurante Avanti was packed. I'd been needing to have and avoiding this conversation for weeks. I was not going to write another book exposing our history without Mom's permission. Proceeding without it would derail the gains we'd achieved. I wasn't willing to take that risk. As the waiter dropped off a basket of crusty sourdough, I leaned toward Mom and continued my pitch. After all the progress we've made healing our relationship, I got interested in the topic of reconciliation, how people make peace with each other, how they don't. Mom picked at a cuticle while I made my case. I scanned her face, trying to decipher her reaction, but I couldn't read her. I ripped off a piece of bread, slowly dragged the crust through the glistening oil. I was asking a lot, and I knew it. It sucked having a writer in the family, especially one like me, writing about the most intimate parts of my life, and by extension, hers. I filled the silence with false bravado. At least I'm done writing about sexual abuse. You should be happy about that. Her lips thinned, but she permitted a small, careful smile. Thank God for small miracles. We both gave a short burst of edgy laughter. After the waiter took our orders, I tore off a second chunk of bread. I could never eat enough. I was a nursing mother. I chose my words carefully. This could be my next big thing. I had discussed it with my editor. She'd floated it to her boss, and they'd given me a green light. There'd be a substantial advance, enough to pay our bills for half a year. But first, I had to get Mom to agree. I tore the bread in half with my teeth. I don't know, Laurie. She ran her fingers over the tablecloth, tracing the fold. Your first book? It almost killed me. I was not getting into a discussion of the courage to heal with my mother. Our growing rapprochement relied on keeping our irreconcilable differences compartmentalized in the past. Now, I needed her blessing. This was the book I wanted to write. I had a family, a four-year-old, a new baby. Brian was in college, and I was helping to pay for it. 
I spoke with enthusiasm, modulating my voice with just a touch of firmness. This book will be different. It will celebrate what we've accomplished. Besides, it won't just be about us. We'll just be a little thread in the book. I'm going to interview lots of other people. Mom loved the limelight, but like me, she liked to hide her flaws even more. She sipped her ice water. I just don't know, Laurie. My jaw tightened. Mom, what you and I have accomplished together is remarkable. People could learn from us. This book could help a lot of people. Yes, I'm sure it could. But her voice trailed off. I could tell she was itching for a cigarette. But she didn't realize I knew she still smoked. She had been trying to quit for 30 years. Two pieces of blackberry pie arrived at the table to our left, a lit candle rising from the center of each. Two women, early 30s. They were identical. Same face, same body, different hairdos. I tried not to stare. Mom was looking too. Both of us thinking the same. What if she had lived? Vicky was a loss we shared. As the women at the next table sang happy birthday for two, I swallowed hard. An ancient emptiness rose up inside me. I tried to hide that yearning from Mom, but she looked at the twins and then back at me. Her eyes softened. Okay, darling, tell me about your book. Over grilled salmon, I described my plans, how I'd interview Vietnam veterans who went back to Vietnam, people who'd used restorative justice, family members who had succeeded and failed in their attempts to make peace with each other. And of course, I'll tell our story. That's the motivation for it all. Mom asked a few questions, but remained noncommittal. As I checked my watch, voices in Spanish rose and fell in the kitchen. I had a three-and-a-half-hour respite between Lizzie's feedings. We'd been out three hours already. My breasts were getting full. I brushed the crumbs from Mom's side of the table into my waiting palm. We've had a great visit. Karen and I are so glad that you are part of our lives, that you're getting to know the kids, and they're getting to know you. You're a terrific grandmother. She teared up. Lori, I love my winters in Santa Cruz. After everything we've been through, you've welcomed me here. I wouldn't want anything to get in the way of that. The waiter dropped the bill on the table, right between us. I reached over and pulled it to my side. She reached for the check. Let me take that. I invited you. It's my treat. I slipped my credit card into the folio. Mom picked at her cuticle again. It was red and raw. I really want to help you out, darling. But something was still standing in her way. Then what's the real problem, Mom? She hesitated. I just don't know if I can trust you. Heat rushed to my face. The woman who had betrayed me was calling me the betrayer? 
But if I confronted her, this conversation would be over. I had to keep the boundaries firm. That was then, this is now. I plastered on what I hoped would be a reassuring smile. Mom, I'm older now. This time I want to interview you so you could tell our story your way. It won't just be my story. It will be our story. Mom gazed at the twins across the room, laughing and opening gifts. I'd really like that. Her eyes lingered on the women a little too long. I want to do this for you, Laurie. But she turned her head and withdrew her hands from the table. I needed this book contract for my family. Once I signed it, we both knew there'd be no turning back. I pressed on. This time, you'll get to read it first. I promise I won't publish anything you're not comfortable with. The last thing I want is for my book on reconciliation to mess things up between us. I looked her in the eye. I care more about you than I do about this book. Hot tears pressed up, surprising me. Our waiter returned the folio, and I scrawled in the tip. When I looked down, a milk stain was spreading across my shirt. I leaned forward in my chair and placed my hands on the table. Mom? When she finally returned my gaze, her eyes were certain. Okay, Laurie, go ahead. I'm going to trust you. Her voice didn't waver. You won't be sorry, I promise. I held her eyes, and she held mine. As I reached for my hoodie, my body sagged in relief. Now I could pay my half of the mortgage, Eli's tuition at preschool, Brian's room and board. Now I could go home and nurse my baby. I tossed my napkin onto the table and zipped up my sweatshirt over the growing stain. Chapter 35, Interview. Laura, 41, Temi, 70, Santa Cruz. It wasn't until the following winter that we finally scheduled our interview. The book had a name now. I thought we'd never speak again. The road from estrangement to reconciliation. The first draft was almost complete. Hers would be the final interview. It was March 1998, a quiet winter afternoon. I made sure we'd be alone. We carried steaming mugs of tea into the living room. Evidence of the kids was everywhere. A stack of board books teetering in the corner. Russian nesting dolls rolling in pieces on the hearth a stack of brightly colored origami paper, and a dozen failed attempts at Eli's first paper crane, Karen's turquoise yoga mat waiting rolled in the corner. Karen was picking up the kids on her way home from work, Lizzie from toddler care, Eli from preschool. They'd be bursting through the door in less than three hours. Mom sank deep into one end of the brown flowered sofa. The cushions sagged from years of kids jumping where they weren't supposed to. 
I sank deep into the other. Between us was my old Sony cassette recorder from my years working in radio, a gift from mom for my 26th birthday, top of the line. Now the machine was a dinosaur, but I still used it for interviews. Snug in its black leather case, it sat waiting. A mic on a stand pointed mom's way, a box of waiting tissues at her feet. I slipped a cassette into the machine and faced her. Knotted fingers pressed deep into her lap. I could feel her mind churning. Why did I agree to this? What has Lori gotten me into now? I waited. A crow cawed on the power lines, then another. They were dropping walnuts on the asphalt to crack them. Mom looked up, doubt furrowing her brow. I arranged my face in a neutral position and ignored the tightness in my chest. One Mississippi, two Mississippi. Mom won't bail on me, or will she? I unfolded my notes. If I act like it's going to happen, it will. I gentled my voice. Mom, I'm good at this. Resolve and uncertainty battled in her eyes. I paused, wondering just how hard to push. Remember, this is your chance to tell our story your way. When I said that, her eyes settled. She sat up on the couch and nodded. Hallelujah. I turned on the recorder and broke the silence with my professional voice, clear, well-enunciated, and softened with kindness, not the kindness of a daughter toward her mother, but rather the practiced kindness of an interviewer toward a subject ready to bear her soul. As a talk show host and author, I'd spent years persuading people to share the rawest parts of their lives with me, but I had never done an interview like this. We're here today to hear your side of our estrangement and reconciliation story. For the sake of this interview, I'm going to ask you to respond to my questions as if I'm not the person you're talking about. I'd like you to talk about me in the third person instead of directly to me. It will really help. Do you think you could do that? Mom mulled over my request, looked out the window. Our neighbor, pruning roses, saw her and waved. I'll try. I glanced at my notes. I needed a moment to quiet the scared girl thumping in my chest. I was a professional. I carefully modulated my voice. Can you start by telling me what you think caused the rift with your daughter initially? Mom began tentatively, but as she spoke, her voice grew firmer. For a very long time, starting when you were a teenager, when she was a teenager, she paused, accepted my correction, when she was a teenager, I felt my daughter hated me, and I really couldn't figure out why. I always saw myself as a loving mother. It was extremely painful for me because I was at a very vulnerable time in my life. 
I was trying to find my way on my own after my husband left me. I was worried about my son, who was away at college experimenting with drugs. And the only person I was living with was this daughter, who was angry at me all the time. There was nothing I could do to please Laurie. Her eyes brimmed with tears. I tried everything in my power to support you after Dad left. To support her. Remember, Mom, I'm not me. I had to keep control of this interview. I couldn't let it turn into therapy. But you're doing great. Mom paused, then picked up the thread. I hoped her anger was just teenage rebellion. Her reaction to me as the custodial parent who tried to set limits but she just kept drifting farther away from me, living her life in total opposition to how I hoped she would live. At 16, my daughter turned down a full scholarship to Wellesley College. She became involved with a charlatan, a 13-year-old guru. She moved far away from me. But the worst part wasn't what she was doing. It was how much she distanced herself from me, as the years went by, we had less and less in common. There was less we could talk about, less that might bring us together. Mom's version, a well-burnished tale. My jaw clenched at all of her omissions. But this was her turn to tell the story her way. Things kept going from bad to worse, I just about accepted one decision of hers when I'd be confronted with another disappointment and then another. Frustration edged her words and her voice grew thick. Then came the final blow. She called to tell me that my father had sexually abused her. When in my shock, I reacted to that. Granted, not in the best way. She got mad and wouldn't talk to me. My daughter wrote a very popular book in which I felt personally attacked and humiliated. It put me in a position of being torn between my caring about her and my love for my original family, and it almost destroyed me. Well, it almost destroyed me too. You abandoned me when I needed you the most. But I pushed the voice of that wounded girl away. Later... I'll listen to you later. I started floating out of my body, so I pressed my bare feet against the floor, felt the cool wood rise up to meet me. I checked the recorder, let Mom's words wash over me. She was reliving every bit of the pain, her grief as intense as it had been decades before. After that blow, my daughter and I both made efforts to come together, but our lives had diverged so much it was hard. There were so many things we couldn't talk about. At one point, I flew across the country to go to therapy with her. I felt like she and the therapist ganged up on me. They expected me to grovel and say, I'm sorry, everything I did was wrong, but I couldn't do that. Instead of making things better, therapy only made things worse. Her voice filled with tears. My throat did, too. That therapy session had been horrible for both of us. 
and now she was back in that room, feeling ambushed all over again. Lori and I tried to speak a few other times, but we could never make any progress. Finally, we both came to the conclusion that these efforts to get validation from each other weren't going to work, so we decided to leave the unresolved stuff sitting there. We've never been able to talk about the force that drove us apart the most, the accusation of sexual abuse. I've had to accept that my relationship with my daughter cannot include her memories of my father. She'd gotten right down to the bone. I couldn't let her stay there alone. I sloughed off my roll and took her hand. It felt unfamiliar and warm. I gave her a moment to compose herself, took back my hand, donned the cloak of interviewer again. My voice gentle, I pressed on. What finally allowed you to move forward, despite the fact that I said your father abused me and you didn't believe me? I was so engrossed in her story, I'd forgotten the third-person routine. This was new territory, something we'd never risked before. Mom looked up, a question burning in her eyes. I don't know if I should tell you this. I'm not sure you'll be able to handle it. Go ahead. I leaned forward, held my breath. Well, I just couldn't believe your accusation. I've searched my memory and concluded that my father could never have done that to you. Then I read a lot of literature from the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. I froze. The False Memory Syndrome Foundation? Oh my God! Jesus! Mom! You went to them? They describe the typical incest survivor with false memories, and you fit the profile 1,000%. That was the real turning point for me. Instead of seeing you as my tormentor, I started seeing you as someone under the influence of people who had convinced you those memories were true. That helped me stop feeling I had to protect myself and my family against you. I felt dizzy. I didn't know what to say, whether to laugh or cry. Really? The False Memory Syndrome Foundation helped you make peace with me? Yes, it did. So I decided to go to one of their meetings. I stared at her. The wall heater whooshed out a sudden wave of heat. What happened? Mom looked at me a practiced smile brightening her beleaguered face. She was a great storyteller. She had me in her thrall, and she knew it. Leaning forward with her actress voice, she spilled the rest of the story. I drove down to the meeting. I think it was in Philadelphia. Someone got up and started attacking you and your book, and I immediately wanted to get up and punch the guy. No one there knew I was your mother, but I wanted to shout, How dare you say that about my daughter? In that moment, I realized 
I felt much more loyal to you than I did to them. I picked up my pocketbook and left. I laughed out loud, trying to envision it. Mom showing up, hoping for validation, then rejecting the very people she'd hoped would save her. I could see her storming out, clutching her patent leather pocketbook, the click of her heels on linoleum, the slam of the door. With Mom's revelation, all pretense of conducting an interview was over. We sat quietly, relishing the space she'd just created with her honesty. That's when I felt an unexpected bubble of truth rising up from my core. I spoke my next words without premeditation, revealing an allegiance hidden so deep inside that I had no idea what I was about to say. Mom, I'd like to take care of you when you're old. I think you should move to California. I was just as shocked to say it as she was to hear it, yet the best part of me was smiling, the part in charge of my evolution as a human being the part committed to pushing past my fears and limits, the part that was whole and had never been wounded, that part was cheering. For once, Mom was speechless. Did she cry? I don't remember. I know I didn't. I was far too controlled to cry. But we both needed a moment of privacy to take in the magnitude of what I had just said. We looked away from each other, unable to meet each other's gaze. Then we looked back and really looked at each other. I stepped out from behind the wall I had always erected between us and for the first time in decades let her see me. My body reverberated with the impact of my words, it wasn't that I wanted to take them back. It was more like, what have I done? Can the rest of me possibly step up and fulfill the promise my soul just uttered? Mom shifted her body away and stared out at the crows, uncertainty shadowing her face. Her brow furrowed, her hands curled in her lap like a question mark. Mom had always been able to read me perfectly, but this time I was the one reading her. As she sat there, not looking at me, I knew just what she was thinking. Can I really trust Lori with the rest of my life, or will she betray me again? Chapter 36 Feedback Laura, 43, Temi, 72, Santa Cruz. Two years after our interview, I completed the final draft of I Thought We'd Never Speak Again. I had one last set of revisions to go. As I told my mother initially, the book was primarily based on other people's stories, but the parts about us were raw and significant. Now it was time for me to fulfill my end of the bargain, letting her read and respond to what I'd written. 
I was terrified to give her the book. My revisions were due in April, and finalizing the material about my mother was one of my last tasks. Each visit we had that winter, I thought about bringing her the manuscript, but panicked every time. I needed her approval, but couldn't ask for it. Mom's copy of the book sat untouched on my desk. Finally, a month before she was returning to New Jersey, I invited her out to lunch. As we made small talk, she seemed to sense something was wrong, but waited for me to bring it up. But as we finished our salad, she finally blurted out, Lori, what's the matter? Concern colored her face. I hesitated. I knew what was in my backpack, and she didn't. Maybe I should just tell her I have a headache. Then I could keep my bag zipped and return the book to its safe spot on my desk. But a little voice inside me insisted, You promised. As I zipped open the bulging bag, I said, It's the book, Mom. I pulled out the thick manuscript with its smooth green cardstock cover and set it on the table. It filled the space between us. Bound with a thick plastic spiral, I thought we'd never speak again, dwarfed our watery iced teas and empty salad plates. I let my hand linger on the binding. Mom kept hers in her lap. She stared at it. I stared at it. I swallowed hard. My heart thrashed in my chest, a bird in a too small cage. What if she hates it? She pulled the book over to her side of the table. Well, I guess this is it. The busboy appeared to collect our dirty dishes, ignoring the huge manuscript now in front of Mom. We smiled politely, waiting for his departure. So, Lori, what do you want me to do with it? Write your comments on the pages. I want your reactions, how you really feel. Then I paused, forced myself to meet her eyes. My voice wavered. I want you to tell me if there's anything you can't live with. That was my criteria for making changes, something mom couldn't live with. I prayed for a short list. I didn't know what I would do if it was long. I can do that. I'm on a deadline. You have three weeks to read it. Three weeks max. If you can get it back sooner, that would be great. Mom nodded in agreement. I can do that. Our waitress approached with our entrees, paused at eavesdropping distance, and waited. Mom lifted the book, placed it on the chair farthest away from me, and set her pocketbook on top. It was hers now. That night, the streak of wide awake in my belly just wouldn't quit. Ever since I'd handed her the book, part of me felt missing. But it wouldn't be for long. She'd dive in straight away, find the book so compelling she'd get through it in a few days, a week, max. 
Mom was a voracious reader, and this book was about her. She'd probably cracked the spine the moment she got into the car. I imagined her reading late into the night, the light of her Mexican table lamp glowing down on the double-spaced pages. Maybe she was up reading it now. That's probably why I couldn't sleep. That psychic tie between us. She was riveted. I'd get it back in plenty of time to integrate her changes. A week went by. We watched the Oscars together. Mom said nothing. I said nothing. I knew she was reading it. She knew she was reading it. But neither of us said a word. This was taking longer than I thought. But the book was brand new to her. I'd been living with my words for a long time. I could practically recite all 400 pages by heart. Of course she needed time. By day 10, my equanimity had crumbled. I was afraid to broach the subject but could think of nothing else. What chapter was she on? Was she talking it over with her friends? Her therapist? Did she think I'd been fair? Would she be able to tolerate my version of her worst mistakes as a mother? And lurking beneath it all, what would she ask me to change? It wasn't like I could pull the book. It was going to press and had to stay pretty much the way it was. Yet within those constraints, I didn't want the book I'd written, inspired by us, to tear us apart again. I trusted that Mom would say yes to as much as she could. But if she hated everything and made me cut her out, I'd be gutting the heart of the book. Late at night, I went through the manuscript with a fine-tooth comb, imagining how she'd react to every line. She might have a real problem with the passages where I had described the ugly scenes that had led to our estrangement. I had definitely taken a risk there. But how could I tell our story without describing how bad things had been? Our interview? She'd probably love that part. And how could she not love the sentence where I said she was the bravest person I'd ever met? But if she says, I hate to do this, darling, but I've changed my mind, what will I do then? Each time Mom stopped by, I checked out the bag she was carrying but it was always a normal-sized pocketbook, nothing large enough to hide a fat green book. As the days ticked by, Mom started looking different to me, her skin tauter, her edges sharper. The woman before me was not the mother I'd made peace with. Temmie Davis, the mother of my adolescence and young adulthood, blazed up, looming over me, I eyed her with ancient suspicion. I felt young and afraid. Maybe I wasn't as far along on the path to reconciliation as I'd thought. Ten days before my mother's flight back to New Jersey, I stared at my phone. Would she leave without responding? I didn't think she'd do that. But maybe this was her revenge for the courage to heal. Her silence was driving me mad, but I was too lost in my trance of disempowerment to break it. Grown-up Laura was nowhere to be found. 
In the final days before her flight, Mom picked up Lizzie at preschool, clapped at Eli's school play. She remained pleasant, but inscrutable. All those decades of acting were paying off, but I had no such training. Two days before Mom's departure, I chose a time when I knew she'd be out and left a message. Can you come over tomorrow at one o'clock? I hesitated. We can have some tea and talk about things. I cursed myself as soon as I hung up. What was I so afraid of? The answer was obvious. The ogre I'd created in my head that I had always created in my head. She emailed back that evening. See you tomorrow. When Mom arrived the next day, there was no green book in her hands. She was carrying an oversized bag, but I'd seen her carry it before. Did it look heavier than usual? I couldn't tell. I led her to the back deck, made two big mugs of fresh peppermint tea, just the way Karen taught me, bruising the leaves first, then adding boiling water. Mint grew wild all over our yard. We sat perched at a small, round, red table that had just enough space for two folding chairs. As we sipped our tea, we discussed Karen's yoga for scoliosis back care training, my writing classes, the last movie Mom had seen with her friends, Lizzie's obsession with Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. I showed off the blue and white checked pinafore Karen was sewing for her and Eli's latest origami model. Soon, only wet leaves remained at the bottom of our cups. I was out of my body, hovering just over my head. A blue jay landed in our birdbath and splashed its feathers. We both smiled at its obvious pleasure. Silence fell between us, and a plane roared overhead. Mom reached into the oversized bag at her feet, pulled out the manuscript, and set it on the table. Oh my God, there it is. The book looked worn and well-read, its cover creased and coffee-stained, the plastic binding askew. My God, she's actually read it. Dozens of yellow post-its jutted from its pages. She probably hated it, every tag a slam, but maybe she loved it. Two years of work were about to crash and burn. I thought about our mortgage, Brian's tuition, our bills. I struggled not to rise out of my body, not to float off into the sky. A faint whiff of jasmine brought me back. A hummingbird darted in a brilliant flash of green. The clip-clip of our neighbor's shears pruning her roses amplified. I tried not to stare at the book. I looked at the backyard instead. It was almost time to take the kids out on the railroad tracks to pick blackberries. Stop it, Laura. Come back. You need to be here. Mom fingered the ragged cardstock. Lori, I'm going to be honest. 
There were a number of parts of the book that were hard for me to read, but there are only two things I'm going to ask you to change. Despite the cool spring day, a line of sweat sprouted down my back. You know that story near the end about my 70th birthday party, where you and Paul flew to New Jersey with all my grandkids? Yeah, did you like that part? That was one of the best days of my life. The way you two surprised me, when you all walked in like that, Eli in that lion costume and Lizzie in your arms, Paul and Sonia piling in behind, it was one of the greatest moments of my life. And Laurie, you captured it so well. The way you wrote it made me cry. But here she dropped into a stage whisper. I don't want people to know how old I am. Can you just say it was a special birthday? I waited. Where was this headed? She said nothing more. It couldn't be that simple. Then it hit me. It was that simple. I gave her a reassuring smile. Sure, Mom, I can change that. Happy to. Thank you, darling. My whole body relaxed. That would be an easy fix. But then a second silence stretched between us. My throat tightened again. It can't have taken three weeks for Mom to tell me that. Number two must be harder. Much harder. There is one other thing. Mom's voice trailed off, and she looked away. She stared at her hands, twisted in her lap. Her words slipped out quietly. I'd like you to say more good things about me. She glanced up at me, a quick glance, enough for me to see the truth in her eyes. I want people to know I'm a good person, that I was a good mother, that I loved you. Oh, my God, she shouldn't have to ask for this. Tears of regret filled my eyes. Mom leaned forward, framed by flowers, and I could suddenly see how small she really was. Her face, her body, everything looked softer. I thought about her resilience, her generosity, her humor, her strength. I thought about the woman who'd rebuilt her life when my father walked out on her, Temmy Davis had pursued her passions, traveled the world, and triumphed on the stage. She'd said yes to this book and now was asking for something in return. For me, who judged her for so long, to remember the good. I'd love to do that for you, Mom. Relief flooded her face. It will be easy. There are so many good things to say. Here's one. It happened in New Jersey, when Mom was still living in my childhood home. I was visiting from far away. I imagined myself in my early 20s. Maybe it was after I left the ashram at 21, when I had no idea what the rest of my life might be. 
Perhaps it was after I came out to her, when I was living on my high horse, spouting feminist philosophy, and she was certain I'd live out my life as a lonely lesbian in a seedy bar. The night before, Mom and I had agreed to call a truce on whatever conflagration was consuming us and to walk to the beach the next morning. After breakfast, we put on our windbreakers, laced up our sneakers, and headed out the front door toward the Atlantic. The moment we stepped out onto the crooked sidewalk, the sky opened, as if God had decided that very day to start the flood. Sunny one moment, a downpour the next. I gasped. She gasped. We were drenched in seconds, rain soaking our clothes, dripping from our noses, saturating our skin, our socks and shoes, soggy white cotton in rubber soles. Mom yelled out, It's raining, cats and dogs! I nodded, but could barely hear her. The rain was too loud. We looked at each other, each expecting the other to run back into the shelter of the house. Mom shouted through the rain, Let's go anyway! I gaped at her. Did my mother really want to get drenched with me in the rain? As she looked at me expectantly, a huge, adventurous grin spread across her face. I'd never seen that look before. Her hair was stringy and wet, her cheeks painted with rivulets of rain, her dare unmistakable. I wanted to know this woman. Yes, I shouted, grinning back. She put her arm in mine, and it felt like it belonged there. And together we turned away from the known world and the walls of my childhood home and ran out onto the soggy streets. Our glasses streaked so much we couldn't see. Laughing, delighted, we strode out into the deluge. That was great. Laura, this is... I love this so much. There's so much in this story. I don't even... Part of me is like not even really sure where to begin with this all. But clearly... What you capture that goes on in the settings while you're having these discussions with your mom, I'm especially thinking of the time she sat down with you in your house to do this interview and she sort of has this indecision in her eyes still and there's a crow dropping walnuts that crack and I'm sorry, I'm not sure if I'm reading too much into this, but it's like, oh, this nut is about to be cracked. Right. Of course. Yeah. It's total, every, you know, the thing is, when you write, because you're a writer, when you write your first draft, people say put in detail, sensory detail. So you do. Yes. But then when you're really editing and you're d doing like the hundredth draft, you're really choosing the details that emotionally resonate with what's going on in the story. And the crows... I mean, we do have crows that do that at our house. Yep. But the reason I put it in also was that at the end of the book, when she is dying... I'm at that retreat, and Karen said there were five crows outside mm. her window today. And that's when I decided to go be with her for her the end of her life. Right. So I knew that I had to weave, you know, it's like yes. you have to weave these things back in. Right. So then I added the crows in, and then I made it, yeah, cracking the nut, the nut that's hard to crack. Exactly. I do. I find it interesting, too, that, that when you do say, okay, I have to put in these details, and 
I do find that the details that you remember in some strange way are the ones that become sort of like metaphorical. They end up playing this double duty. I not, mean, o- not always. I, not I mean, always. No, I don't but, think that's always true. Um, right, right. Okay. I, I think it's, you know, this is where the craft of writing comes in is selecting those details. It's like, it's not just what you remember. It's what will serve your story. And it's like, I always tell the story about Lucy Greeley. Do you know her book, Autobiography? Oh, yes. Okay. And yes. Ann Patchett wrote a book about her. At the end of the book, she tells this story where people would say, I can't believe you remembered all that. And Lucy said, I didn't remember it. I'm a writer. I wrote it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like you very carefully construct a story. And like, I worked so hard on the suspense in both those scenes, the scene where the interview and mm-hmm. and the suspense when I'm waiting for her response. Yes. You know, I mean, I wrote and wrote, rewrote that many times so that the reader wouldn't know which way things were going to happen. Right. Right. So right. that's what keeps people turning pages. Right. And I guess the, the other big thematic thing that came across to me was these big questions of risk and trust with everything that had gone before. And here you are asking to write another book with her and she says I'm not sure I can trust you and yet here you are putting your livelihood in her hands right that's true yeah I felt your anxiety and like oh boy she could say no and this is all gonna fall apart and then what happens and um Mm -hmm. so that's that was huge stakes on both of your behalves so I can't thank you enough for reading this section of the book, which for me went a long way to explain how you got from sort of this estrangement to mom, come out and live with us when you are older. So my question I always ask everyone as we wrap up is, what was daring about this? Now, going back to what we were talking about, before you read, there are some things about this book that are incredibly daring that the listener is not going to know about right now. But maybe with the um, the section we just heard from, what was daring about this? Well, I mean, the very first section when we're Ellen and I are defending our book, what she did going on those TV shows where she knew she was going to be ramroded. Ramroded? Ramrodded? Railroaded. Yeah, where she was going to just be (laughs) railroaded. She was just going to be attacked. And then, you know, standing up to these lawsuits. And I mean, whenever there's progress, social progress, there's a backlash. We're in the hugest backlash right now. And we were subject to that backlash. And we happened to be incredibly visible. And, And that whole backlash happened because adult survivors of sexual abuse began suing their perpetrators to get money to pay for their therapy. And as soon as money got involved, that's when the False Memory Syndrome Foundation was founded. Wow. So th- being the spokespeople right. uh, and so visible, that was incredibly courageous and challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and with my mother, I think allowing her to start coming to visit me in the winter and to stay in my town was a huge risk Mm -hmm. because we were still very volatile at that point. You know, she would come to my house. We're Jewish. We would have a Seder and we would have some like, you know, feminist freedom Seder. We'd talk about, you know, the Palestinians and she would storm out of the house. And, (laughs) and, you know, I mean, it it just took nothing to trigger each other all the time. And so the idea of being around her was felt incredibly risky and difficult. So saying yes to that, there was always a little part of me that 
hungered for reconciliation. And I think we both had that despite many, many, many experiences that would make it seem like this is a really bad idea. Just keep walking away from each other. So I think that was daring, took a lot of daring. And, you know, I mean, when she was sitting with that book, that those weeks she was sitting with that book and I put my income, my income was on the line. I mean, that was my, yes. I'm an author. That was my livelihood. I had a book contract I had signed and I was giving this book to her and I didn't know what she would say. So that took a lot of daring. And then, mm-hmm. you know, in the interview, she really opened up and shared something she thought I couldn't handle. You know, and it actually made me feel closer to her. I mean, when I think of the entire book and all the stories I told about her and then all the stories I didn't tell about her, mm-hmm. you know, which is most of them. Right. That moment when she stood up in that meeting in Philadelphia at the False Memory Syndrome Foundation and stormed out with her pocketbook. Right. That's one of my favorite moments with her because it demonstrated this incredible quality she had of loyalty. And you could say, well, how could you call her loyal? She betrayed you. Well, she did betray me, but she betrayed me because she was being loyal to someone else. And then she said she felt like she was being ripped in two. She was being loyal to her father and her family of origin. I mean, I think that was the wrong choice. And I think she was wrong, but it actually still demonstrated the same quality. And so, yeah, I think that she showed a lot of daring and risking coming out here. And then, you know, when she took me up on my invitation, which I had forgotten about because it had been 10 years earlier and she moved out here, she did put her life in my hands. And I think neither one of us knew how that was going to end up. Right. Well, the risk was very clear on both sides. And I do think that that moment where she told you about the false memory syndrome people, that's another thing about making ourselves vulnerable with sharing. It encourages sharing on the other side. So with that sort of unexpected sharing that came between you, it opened up the possibility for you to say, I'd like you to come out and stay with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was, I think that's one of those moments in life where my personality, my ego self definitely did not make that invitation. It would have been the last thing in a million years I would have done. It really felt like I said, my soul spoke. It's not my typical lingo, right. but I really, at that moment, it was one of those moments in life where the truth was spoken, like what was meant to be. And kind of neither one of us could deny it, even though we both freaked out over it. Right, you know? right. Um, what do you think she would think of this book? Um, what would she think of this book? You know, I did ask her if I could publish it. I asked her when she was, st- obviously, when she was still alive. Yeah. And, and, you know, she had dementia at this point. So it, you could argue that her consent was right. yeah. <laughs> not full. But what she said was, go ahead, Lori, our story had a happy ending, mm. which I thought was like the sweetest response. And, yes. and I, I always thought, well, you know, did she really give consent? And I did wait till after she died to publish it, which I felt was important for me. Mm-hmm. But recently, I had something really interesting happened. I have a cousin gradually hearing from my extended family reading the book. And I have this cousin who lives in London. And he said that when he visited her for the last time, he was on a walk with her. And she said to him, Lori's writing a book about me. It's okay with me as long as she publishes it after I die. And I didn't know that. So for me, hearing that was actually really important. It really made me feel um, good about what I wrote. And my brother insists that she would love it, that, you know, she, she was an actor for decades and decades. She loved the limelight and that I have immortalized her. And I think 
he said she would be very happy yeah. and, and proud of me yeah. and that she would really like to be immortalized in that way. So I, I'm going to hold on to that as the, the reality. And even my relatives who, my more distant relatives who were really unhappy I published this book because I'm bringing up the incest again, you know, after all these decades, mm-hmm. um, they said, you know, you really captured her. So I feel like I really accurately portrayed her. And the reason I knew the book was finished, actually, was that my beta readers, who I mentioned earlier, they started saying things like, on this page, I hated your mother and loved you. And on this page, I hated you and I loved your mother. And that's when I knew the book was finished because I had achieved creating these two very complex likable, unlikable, lovable, unlovable characters. Yeah. And that was my goal. So that's when I knew I had I had achieved what I wanted. Yeah. I think by the end, I said, the burning light of two stars. It is the perfect title. I mean, it's, yeah. 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 And you're fair. And I think with memoir, it's not always about happy endings. But I think it's interesting that you say that because there's something very heartening about this. And it was very real. It was very fair. And you represented each of you so beautifully. So I cannot thank you enough for all your time today in every (laughs) stripe of that. Um, And for your enthusiasm for my podcast, which I am tremendously... I love your podcast. It's wonderful to hear these long stories. I mean, they're just dreamy. I put on a headset and I go walking the dog and go for like an hour or two walk and I just listen and... I feel really honored to be one of your guests. Um, it's it's a podcast I will cherish and definitely promote. And oh, um, I, I love that people will be able to hear it. Me too. I cannot thank you enough. I am really grateful and so happy to have been able to make your acquaintance this way. I can't tell you how much it means to me. Yeah, I look forward to meeting in person. I do too. Oh, man. At the end of every one of these conversations... I listen back, usually multiple times, and try and glean some larger takeaway. Here's just one observation of many after listening to Laura Davis. The seed or the core, or perhaps if you want to use her analogy, the nut of what draws us to a person can often be the thing that most rends us from them. Loyalty, for example, Laura points out Temi's loyalty to her father at the expense of her loyalty to her daughter. It's this push and pull that is happening all at the same time. These are the kind of things that I mull over and then often write a little more about in the Daring to Tell newsletter. It is called Hit Pause. You can sign up for that at my website, michellerado.com. And ready or not, next month, I am going to read one of my own essays for you on this podcast. The essay is called The Wonder, and I am super proud to say it was recognized It's the glorious number 19 in the 2021 Writer's Digest Personal Essay Competition. So, in the top 20, not too shabby. Remember to check out the hashtag AmWritingPodcast. There is a link to it in our show notes. And another reminder of just how much visiting your local bookstore or library is a gateway to a transformative experience. This month, 
or anytime, of course. If you're anywhere near Yarmouth, Maine, which is just north of Portland, I encourage you to check out Royal River Books on Main Street. That is where there is a special gift bag waiting for the first person who goes in and says that you heard about them from Daring to Tell. It's got a $25 gift certificate to the store, as well as a copy of Laura Davis's book, The Burning Light of Two Stars, plus a few other surprises, including a CD of my husband Phil Rado's music. It is all just sitting there waiting for you. Even if you're not quick enough to be the person who gets the prize, it is such a great shop with a great nonfiction section and has all kinds of other fun gift items made by local Maine artists. If you enjoy this podcast, I do hope that you will follow it. I hope you will also share a link or tell a friend about it. You can follow me on Twitter as well, at Michelle Rado. A giant thank you to my husband, Phil Rado, who wrote and performed our theme music. It is called Make Me Brave. And most of all, thank you for making it here to the very end and for daring to listen. And nothing's gonna break my fall There's nothing in the protocol It's like swimming up waterfall or taking away the ground Taking away the ground It's like taking away the ground